So grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis 11. Now, Genesis 11 was part of our reading Thursday. So as a general rule, I say that because I, 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 I want to feel free to break my own rule, um, is Wednesday nights we'll look at Wednesday's reading, and on Sunday evenings we'll look at uh, the reading from Thursday and Friday. Um, one of them, or all of them, or whatever seems to work, work best. So I've already looked at next week. It looks like um, we'll be looking at Genesis 22 Wednesday, Lord willing, and then probably Genesis 26 next Sunday evening. So as you read through uh, your scripture this week, know that uh, uh, a good chunk of what you read we will be exploring together. Well, Genesis 11, famous story of the Tower of Babel. So if you will stand with me, reverence of God's word. And if you've been with us on Wednesday nights for several years, we talked about Tower of Babel. I think it was three generations ago, but we have explored this in some detail in the past. Nevertheless, uh, the writer of Genesis writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves build ourselves a city and a tower at this top in the plan in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth whole earth and the lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built and the lord said behold they are one people they have all one language and this is the only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them come let us go down and they're confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech so we'll disperse from there from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's go Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as we come to a passage that no doubt we are familiar with, but at times may take for granted its purpose and meaning in the text and salvation history, may you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, uh, that we would go in obedience to Christ, and be transformed by his gospel. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. No doubt every parent here and elsewhere, all they really want at the end of the day is for their kids to get along. That's all you want, right? We, we had, uh, growing up, uh, mom and dad were pretty poor, and so uh, their ba- babysitter of choice, well, I don't know of choice, was my sister, Right? And because we couldn't get along, it would, the general rule was, sis was in charge, but leave my brother alone, right? So he was independent, yet not independent all at the same time. He's sort of like a state here in the United States, sovereign, and yet under the authority of the federal government all at the same time. And we fought all the time. I mean, all the time. And it was understood that if my sister or one of us had to call mom or dad and bothered them while they were at work, uh, we were going to get the whooping of a lifetime. So a lot of things did not get reported to the police. I mean, to mom and dad. In fact, I think the police would have been more uh, generous to us. But mom and dad, I remember all the time thinking, if, if, I just wish you kids could get along. Just get along. Just for one day, give me an hour of just getting along, right? But at the same time, if for some reason your kids are getting along, you start to get really suspicious. You see, you want the many to be one, 
<laughs> but when the many become one, verily I say unto thee, they're up to something. And you need to break it up, right? I mean, I don't want you kids to be happy because it's going to affect me, right? You know, and, and, and in, in many ways, that, that is what you have here. If, if you've been reading through Genesis thus far in our reading, you, you've probably noticed that there, there's an emphasis on oneness, right? That, that God created man, yet it's not good that he is alone. And so he made two, and out of that two is to, is to become one. And yet, yet that one then becomes three, right, with, the, with children. But yet, yet that child is then to go and the two again should become one and then the two become one and on and on and on it goes unity is the theme thus far of, of genesis the problem comes whenever sin enters into the world and so in genesis 3 you, you see in the fall of man that when the two become one sin enters into the marriage and now the one become two again and not only that, but, but when children come, they're at war with each other. And so throughout Genesis, we see the sibling rivalry among brothers and sisters. It's Cain and Abel. It's Jacob and Esau. It's, it's Jacob's 12 sons. It's Isaac and Ishmael. It's Rachel and Leah. All of them are at war with, with each other. Where there should be unity, there is often um, uh, discord. Yet, yet here, we, we actually see the inverse of it. Where we should have multiplicity and diversity, we actually see unity. And what brings them together is not the glory of God, but the glory of man. Well, let's begin here with the plan here of, of, the, of the Babel. And uh, I do think it's worth mentioning here as we come to Genesis 11. This is of, of great significance. Genesis 11 is the conclusion, if you will, of, of the first scroll or first part of Genesis, right? It, it, there's a clear breaking point after the Tower of Babel and the beginning of the story of Abraham because the story really shifts. And so what you get in the first 11 chapters that you've read this week are three major falls. So the first one we've already alluded to is the fall of man, right? In Genesis chapter three, this is where uh, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, uh, seeking wisdom in, in their own eyes rather than the eyes of God and rebel against their maker. In Genesis six, uh, for lack of a better term, the fall of the supernatural world here what you have is in genesis 3 the there's the temptation of man from from the serpent here it is it is the mixing of man and the supernatural and so now what you have is a cosmic well perhaps we could call this the fall of the cosmic sphere or something like that and then here in chapter 11 what we see is the fall of the nations and when you put these together what we find is a more robust biblical theological understanding of what really troubles the world you can ask any individual, and they're going to give you a, 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 some stereotypical, uh, predictable answers. What is wrong with the world? Well, we all know what's wrong with the world. It's Democrats. I'm sorry. I meant to say the Republicans, right? Whichever side you're on, the other people are the problem, right? It's a political problem. Some will say, well, it's, the problem is, is with the breakdown of the family. Some will say the problem is the family. Some say it's the problem is not enough education, not enough access to, to health reform, not enough to, to this or that. It's, it's the nations. It's our nation. It's our history. It's our future. It's the lack of progress, too much progress, so-called progress, whatever it might be. And what you'll find is we will give these answers, but, but we can't seem to put them all together. But the Bible does. Here's what's wrong with the world. It begins with you. You and I, Genesis 3, according to Genesis 3, are what's wrong with the world. Not only that, what we see in Genesis 6 is there is a cosmic uh, influence among the nations and among us that has a great influence and, and yields great influence in our world. 
And according to Genesis 11, there is another problem with the world, and that is when fallen individuals get together. Broken people creates broken systems. And so put these together, what we see is is that there is wickedness. It will abound wherever there is humanity for natural and supernatural reasons. So it is oversimplification to say that that if the problem is we need more individual self-control, and that is good. But to say that without emphasis upon systemic uh, changes. But at the same time, it is wrong to say what we need is systemic overhaul, but never address the individual brokenness. And then to never address that we are engaged in a supernatural warfare is to really, really to shoot yourself in the foot and have no chance of seeing any real progress. Nevertheless, what we see here in verse 1 is, is uh, it says, the whole earth had one language and the same words. It's, it's tough to really put that into English, exactly what the writer is trying to get at. But we can see here that out of the many, right, we just came from Noah at the end of chapter 9, and chapter 10 is genealogies of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. You're welcome for skipping that. And, and so now, out of that many, we have one identified by uh, a linguistic unity, same language, same words. Or we really could s- translate that, for the sake of simplicity, same language, same dialect. Think about it. This, this morning, I think I made a joke about Adidas and Nike. Well, Adidas, we, we Americans don't say Adidas, we say Adidas. And what's the difference between Adidas and Adidas? Well, Americans say Adidas because we don't know German, whereas the Europeans say Adidas because the guy that founded Adidas, his name started with Adidas. I can't pronounce the rest of his last name because he's German, right? <laughs> you know, so nor shall I try. Um, I'd rather read the names in Genesis 10 and try to pronounce them right. So uh, the point is, is that though we and the British speak the same language, at times we don't speak the same language, right? And, and so uh, I think it was Winston Churchill made the comment once. He said, America and England are great allies separated only by a common language, right? <laughs> we, we speak the same language, but sometimes we don't understand each other. And we, we get that, right? When I went to Africa, the uh, translators that were hired by the missionaries uh, we asked him, how many languages do you speak? He said, languages or dialects are two different numbers. We said, well, just both, I guess. Well, I know, you know six languages, but if you add dialects, it's like 15. Because within each language are various dialects, and you need to be able to articulate those depending on what village and tribe you're in. And we understand that. So what it is you have here are, are same language, same tongue, same words, same dialect. Now, just for the sake of interest, because I find this stuff interesting, um, scholars to this day believe that there was at one point a common language. Now, how that is articulated, I don't always understand. And that belief was not unique in the ancient Near Eastern world. For example, the Sumerians and even the Greeks make similar claims, and modern scientists, linguists, and archaeologists seem to, to believe precisely that, that in this area of Shinar or Babylon or modern-day Iraq, what you'll find is the source of that language, and strikingly, that language seems to have disappeared. So one fascinating study has been taking all the, the, the genesis of languages, and there's different families of languages. Again, I, I struggle through Hebrew and Greek, and so no point in me trying to figure all this out. Um, but you can take these languages and, and try to craft what the original language might have been. From what we can tell, this was not a written language, but, but oral only. And all of that is consistent with what it is that we find in the Bible. 
Nevertheless, we, we see that they, they have a common tongue, a common language. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, right away, if you've been reading through Genesis, you should circle a word there. And it, of course, is the word east. We've talked about this on Wednesday night, so I don't want to spend forever on it. But let me just give you three examples uh, of this. Genesis 3, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden, right, right there after the fall of man, Adam and Eve are sent out east, which means the gate of the garden is in the east. By the way, the the, the, the gate of the temple is in the east. The gate of the heavenly temple was in the east. The, the gate of the uh, mobile tabernacle was to be pointed towards the east, I, I believe because to, to reference this. Cain went east after he killed his brother. And so Lot also, when having to choose between land, chose the land to the east. What he thought was Eden was actually taking him away from Eden. The sins of Babylon fall within this pattern. They come from the east to settle in Shinar. Now, clearly, mankind has transitioned from being migrants to being settlers. And again, this is consistent with what it is we know of human history. Shinar is in Sumer, where we get the Sumerians, the the first uh, real um, city-state, the first real nation, people group, uh, whatever term you, you want to use. And uh, it was located between the Tigers and Euphrates, is, is what, what is we have here. By the way, uh, um, Shinar is mentioned in Genesis 10. We, we skipped that in your reading. The beginning of Nimrod, the des- descendant of Ham's kingdom, was Babel, Erek, Akkad, Kalnea, in the land of Shinar. It is modern-day Iraq, and it is ancient Babylon, what is striking is that later in the history of Israel, remember that, uh, that Nimrod, the founder of, 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 of Babel, is a descendant of Ham, who's the brother of Sham. Sham is where we get the term Semites, the Shemites. And so later on in the story of the Semites, the Israelites, is the descendants of Ham, the Babylonians, and their king Nebuchadnezzar will conquer the descendants of Sham, the Israelites, the Jews. And you remember what he does. He will disperse the people. He will make them the one many, but he will choose a select few to bring them into Babylon. And we know the, four, the names of four of them, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And you remember the story of Daniel, particularly Daniel 6. The most famous story is the Daniel lion's, lion's den um, and, and all that. But, but the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember their story, I think it's, it's Daniel 2 or 3, where they're, they're called to bow down to uh, uh, the statue, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, with the story. Well, what is interesting is if you were to pair the story of Babel with the story of the statue, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, there's a lot of, 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 of connection there, right? In Babel or Babylon, his name essentially is the same in, in, in the Bible, what you have is on the one, on one side a tower meant to bring everyone together, uh, and the other end you have a statue meant to bring everyone together. And by the way, if you look at verse 4 of Genesis 11, it describes the tower with a top. The Hebrew word is head. It's the same word you use anytime you use head. And what is a statue is one of Nebuchadnezzar with at his top is Ahead. So what we see is this pattern of behavior among the nations, particularly between the Babylonians and the Israelites from beginning to ends. Nevertheless, they, they settle and they begin to grow in verse 6. And so they agreed to build a city in the land of Shinar. They settled and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, bitumen for mortal, and they came to build a city. 
as verse 4 makes, come, let us build ourselves a city. And so not only do they share the, the, the uh, word east with Cain and others, they also share the biblical problem with cities in the Old Testament. For example, the first city referenced in the Bible is, of course, Cain. When Cain kills Abel, he goes east where he builds a city. And there he names it after his son, Enoch. So too, in the Old Testament, cities were the location of corruption, injustice, violence, and evil. Some of the most famous destructions in the Old Testament are centered around cities. I mean, you, you can think of them off the top of your head. Solomon, Gomorrah, cities. And they're not the only cities that get wiped out by God. Jericho, Nineveh, Babylon. What about Jerusalem? Are sources of evil. This is something Luther uh, experienced for himself growing up in a small mining town. His father was a miner who eventually was able to get out of some poverty. He wanted his son to become uh, a lawyer who later became a monk at the disappointment of his father. But what really changed for Luther is when, as a monk, he was sent to Rome. And he thought in Rome he'd find the city of salvation. What he found was the city of corruption. It was a city. And this is what you find in, in cities even today. Now, just, just to bring a footnote to this, what changes in the Bible regarding a theology of the city is the New Testament. In the Old Testament, cities were, be to, were to be avoided. So when Jonah is called to go to Nineveh, it's shocking to the Jewish readers. Why would any good Jewish boy go to the city, let alone a pagan city like Nineveh? And Nineveh is the home of the Assyrians who have ravished and has Jewish blood on their hands. Why go to them? Surely God doesn't love them and can't love them. In the New Testament, it's reversed. The city is the primary place of church planting. From Rome to Corinth to Ephesus to Colossae to Jerusalem, Antioch, you can name them all. Many of them have books of the Bible named after them. But nevertheless, they, they, they build this tower out of bitumen or tar, which is abundance in the area and still is. And so in verse 4, they agreed to build a city and a tower. And the tower, of course, would be the main thing to see in the city and the central focus of the city. But, but why would they do this? Well, verse 4 gives us three reasons why they would do this, starting with autonomy. They wanted to build it to where its head or its top is in the heavens. This, of course, is hyperbolic. They know they can't literally enter the gates of heaven. Rather, it describes the hubris a hubris that is common in society that believes it can define for itself reality. Some would suggest this has defensive purposes in it, and certainly I, I think there may be some truth to that. I think if you want a modern example of it, you look at Tolkien's uh, city, uh, Lord of the Rings of Gondor, right? Very much dri uh, designed like a ziggurat and is a place of, of uh, defense, right? And maybe that's what this ziggurat, this, this tower is supposed to be. I, I, I don't know that. It doesn't tell us that. But what you see is, is instead of expecting God to come down, man will go up to God. This is hubris. We shall reach him and thus be equal to him. And remember, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the gods dwelt on top of the mountains. And if you can't climb the mountains, what if you created a mountain for yourself? Now you are at the level of the gods. It's hubris. It's autonomy. They will ascend to the heavens. Now this is... This is a building and unity 
apart from the divine. And this is definition apart from the divine. This is identity apart from the Imago Dei. If only I can think of an example for us today, right? The Western world is gripped by this type of idolatry. This is why we we mutilate bodies, including that of underage children, in the name of self-expression and autonomy. Our pursuit isn't to be equal to God. It is because we believe we are equal to God. Lord over the self, Lord over the system, Lord over history. And such extreme narcissism is the building of Babel. Self-definition is as pagan today as it was among the ancient Sumerians and the Babylonians. So not just autonomy, but ambition. Notice it there again, verse 4, to make a name for ourselves. Now, so far in Genesis, to name something was an act of creation, an act of lordship, right? So, so God names the rivers, right, in Genesis 2 and 3, Tigers and Euphrates being among two of those. Adam names the uh, animals, um, and uh, Cain uh, names the city he builds after his son. Lamech names his two wives. Adam named his wife. Much in the same way to this day, parents name their children, right? So, so if, if, if my kids ever come and say, I wish I had a different name, me and my wife will look at them and say, wasn't your choice. Nor is it still your choice, right? <laughs> I mean, we like your name and you're going to get over it, right? I mean, anytime we, we get an animal from here on out, no more cats. And, and I don't care really too much what, what the animal's going to be named, but I, give, I, I have final veto and you can't overwrite that veto, right? <laughs> this is not a democracy. You're not, if we get a dog, you ain't naming it Fluffy, okay? That is an option. You can name it Bear, okay? I'll go with that, you know, but uh, no, nothing like Fluffy, right? We, we understand this. And this act of creation, this, this act of the divine is accentuated by the phrase, come, let us. Again, if you've been reading Genesis, you've come across this. In Genesis 1, God said, come, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So the goal here is fame and reputation. The ancient world believed that one becomes immortal by leaving behind a building named after oneself. In fact, there's an example of this. Absalom does this in 2 Samuel 18. I have no son, so I will will carve my name into stone and be remembered. Now, this this is what drives Americans, isn't it? What matters most is your platform more than anything. People want to be famous. People want to be adored, to have fans, to be remembered. And so you've got to build that platform. How many followers do you have? How many views did you get? I mean, likes, shares, and all that sort of stuff. Now, the irony of the story is the Babylonites get exactly what it is they want. What do they want? They want to make a name for themselves. Here we are reading about them. They did indeed make a name for themselves, but their name comes not out of greatness, but for their folly. Notice the third thing they want, and that is segregation which I know is a strong term, particularly in, in our cultural context, but that is what it is you have here. Notice they, they build this lest we be dispersed. They rationalize they are stronger together than separated. 
This is a simple motivation behind a city. Think about it. I, I grew up in a small town, right? And, and I worked in the city. I was 16, became, uh, worked in the music department, family Christian stores, eventually became the head of the music department. And uh, they would make fun of my accent and the way I lived and all that sort of stuff. And I made fun of them because they were city people and they're easy to make fun of. For, for, I'll give you just a, a goofy example is um, someone came in and asked for a hymn book. And, and I went and got a hymn book. And, but all my coworkers didn't know what it is I was saying. They're saying, what's a hymn? I'm like, what do you mean, what's a hymn? You, don't sing, you sing those at church, don't you? They're just worship songs. You sing at church. And they put them in a book. It's called a hymn book. Like, a hymn book? Like, is there a her book? A her book? What, what are we talking about? Remember that part about dialect? They go, oh, a hymn book. A hymn book. Like, H-E-M. Like, no, it's a Y with an M in it. A hymn. Not a hymn. Hymn. Right? We argued over that for months up over those city people, right? But, but what you'll find them say is, well, we like the city because there's more things to do here. What do you mean there's more things to do? In the country, you got hay bales. That's hours of entertainment right there. But that's how we rationalize. Even today, American urbanization is rooted in that. It's more jobs, more careers, more opportunities, more activities, all of that. So we see that this, this group of people, are, their identity is tied to the city. Now, remember, this contradicts the will and command of God following the story of Noah, which is the story of Adam, which is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So what we don't want are cities where the many are one. What we're, what we're wanting is to have many throughout one world. And, and throughout the world, what you'll find is the family, the first government there. And they violated all that. They don't want to fill the earth. They want to fill the city. Now, again, segregation may be a strong word here, but what, what you can see they're saying is, is this is our group and we don't want to be separated. Our tribe and we want to be emboldened and empowered. It's exactly what it is that we do today. This is why we have black churches and white churches, why we have urban neighborhoods and suburban areas, this is why we have rural counties and gated communities, the Bible Belt, the coast, flyover country. This is why one of the biggest political issues we have today is that people in red states who are blue are fleeing to blue states. And people who in blue states are red are fleeing to red states, which makes the red states redder and the blue states bluer. Now, and what does that do? The people in the red states view the blue states as, as, the, as the wicked people, while the people in the blue states view the people in the red states more wicked. And so at national uh, campaigns, what did you get? You got to get your side on your side. They've got to turn out for the vote. So you do that by demonizing the other side. And then when you get elected, you say, okay, let's all get together, light a candle, sing the Coca-Cola theme song because we're all one nation. And everyone's looking around like for the last two years, you've been calling us evil. And we wonder why it doesn't work. And then what do we do? We keep self-segregating ourselves. We want to be around our sort of people, people who think like us, look like us, talk like us. And so within even a single state, what it is, you have red counties and blue counties, urban areas and rural areas. And we view the world very differently. We as humans prefer segregation. Maybe you still don't believe me. I can prove it. Growing up, if you had a teacher who assigned you a seat, you'd spend the rest of the year complaining about it. But if, if the next teacher did not assign a seat, you'd find a seat and you would sit right there for the rest of the year without complaints. Or, let's say you're visiting East Frankfurt Baptist Church. You'll find your pew and you'll own it. 
You'll carve your name under the pew. So right, it's got your signature on it. And then you'll find out someone's been out for COVID for two weeks and they come back and they say, no, 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 that's my seat. No, it's my seat. I've built my tower here. This is, it's just this right. I got to turn my head just the right way and I can see everything I need, right? I mean, we, we prefer segregation even today. And one of my favorite stories in this, this connection is, uh, some say it's a myth. I don't think it is, um, so I must be right. But uh, the New Yorker film critic, Pauline Kale, sure, why not? Famously said following the Nixon landslide. I said, I can't believe Nixon won, she said. I don't know anyone who voted for him. Now, that's foolishness. It's exactly what it is that we still say today. If you voted for Biden, you can't believe Trump won. If you voted for Trump, you can't believe Biden won. I don't know anyone else who voted for that other guy. So by this point, we should see that there is nothing unique about Babel. Though they've built a ziggurat of some sort, we are equally vainglorious, equally corrupt, equally unjust, equally wicked today. Remember, what it is you have going on in Genesis is the evolution of man in terms of the external. Technology is improving. Their lives are getting easier from being migrants to settlers. But what hasn't changed is the heart. So no matter how ancient the Bible might become or be viewed, what hasn't changed in humanity is the heart of humanity. It's the beauty of the Bible. It should shame us that people from thousands of years ago are still writing to you and me today. We haven't changed one bit. Well, let's move quickly to, to the punishment, verses 5 to 9. Notice what God says here, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the towers that the children of man had built. Now, I, I just love this. He came down to see. Now, there's a problem there, right? Couldn't God see it from his, from his front door in heaven? No. Now, he can, literally. I'm not a heretic here. But that's sort of what the story is doing, is, is, is they think they've built this mighty tower, right? Look what I did. Look what I did. Clearly, all men here who think they're, they're the center of everything. This mighty tower, right? God must be impressed with me. And God is up here in heaven just, no, I'm not seeing it. I just, you mean to tell me, I just, well, let's go down there and see it for ourselves, Right? So like some redneck out of the country, I remember the flood of 1997. Guess what my, my family and I did after all the water stopped falling and all the, uh, you couldn't get out of the county because of the floods, right? Because of the Kentucky River and Elk Creek and all that sort of stuff. What did we do? We got in our, 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 our Sunday bests, got in the nicest car we had, and we drove around the county until we ran into National Guard at every stop, right? Let's go see how bad Monterey is. <laughs> and we go and we see that. Yeah, I tell you, it is flooded. Let's go on down the grass and see what the Ripner's up to. Oh, boy, I tell you. Well, that's what I had to do. We did that, right? And so that's what God's doing. He's like, you say it's there, but it doesn't look very significant to me. So come, let's go see this thing. I've heard so much about it. It was in the was HGTV magazine. They had a whole, whole a spot on it, and I still haven't seen this thing. Let's go see it. So God is making fun of them. It's anthropomorphism. He's not being literal here. Well, it also demonstrates the insignificance of humanity, doesn't it? The tower is great to humanity, but so small, God has to come down to see. In fact, humanity here is called children of man. 
emphasis on the child part. Whenever our son was teeny tiny, and if we were doing Legos or blocks, one thing mattered above everything. How tall can you make this thing? We've got pictures of him, right? He's, he's a foot nothing, and we've just put blocks. And you can see him just amazed that these, these block bricks are bigger than him, right? We would spend hours, and I'll try to explain. You've got to get a good foundation. You're going to build these Legos all to the ceiling. And he just, I don't care about a foundation. I wanted to go to the ceiling, right? And then we spend hours, right? We get so high and it fall down. I'd say, we got to get a better foundation. We go back up and it fall, right? Hours doing this sort of stuff. What is significant to man proves to be insignificant to God. In fact, notice what, he, what it says there in verse six. Behold, they are one people. They have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. That is similar to what God said about humanity in Genesis 6 and later in Genesis 9. And that is the attention of man's heart is evil continually. This is only the beginning of where this is going. Left unchecked, evil will consume them. Remember, we're only 100 years after the flood, just a few generations. It doesn't take long for a society to go from just to unjust. Righteous to wicked. Again, verse 7 is, is come, let us. By the way, this is the same language the, the people of Babel used. And God is mocking them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. God is interrupting their work. Their intentions were stopped in an instant. They woke up one morning thinking they had these great grand plans and they were interrupted immediately by the work of God. This word confuses interesting. The Hebrew consonants are N-B-L, which is the reverse of the Hebrew consonants for bricks, which are L-B-N. It is a play on words in the Hebrew. It doesn't really show up in the English. The point is to show the futility of self-autonomy and undermining the will of God. God will take your bricks and your purpose of them and invert them to now, instead of unity, you get diversity. And in verse 8, instead of destroying them like in the flood, he simply disperses them. And so we get the name in verse 9. Its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. There the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, just for the sake of simplicity, there's a lot we could say here. Babel sounds very similar to the Hebrew word confused. And even today, the word babble speaks of jargon. If a little child were to come up here, we would say that they are babbling, and that's on purpose. They babble. So what is the point of, of all this? What, what is the point? Can I offer just three things, and then we'll call it a night? I've already gone longer than I intended, but you're used to that. First of all, the Tower of Babel explains systemic injustice. Although it is a matter of debate, most agree the genesis of Babel comes from a man by the name of Nimrod. He's introduced in Genesis 10. Cush, father Nimrod, he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar, which we read that last verse earlier. Now, there's a lot to be said about Nimrod. I, I don't want to spend forever on him, but Nimrod reads, his, his biography reads as if he is like one of the Nephilim, right? And we, we talked about them Wednesday. These are mighty men who, who, who likely conquer and are type of tyrants leading to, to the flood. 
And like them, Nimrod conquers and takes. He hunts and destroys. He is a tyrant on the scale greater than that of Cain, Lamech, and others that preceded him. His kingdom, then, is founded on blood and injustice. No wonder the the citizens of his kingdom are motivated by vainglory and self-empowerment. Truth is, where you find cities, particularly where you find empires, you will find evil and corruption. A man left to his own devices is deeply depraved. A multitude of men multiplies depravity. In fact, I think I can prove that to you. We won't look at it for the sake of time. Genesis 6.1 comments how the people multiply themselves. And we see that multiplying is a good thing, right? Uh, the problem is, is that when fallen man multiplies, he multiplies his fallenness. And you're getting that here with Babel. There's no redemption among these people. They've rejected God completely. They keep eating of the wrong tree. And so... What you have then is when a group of fallen people come together, you just get more fallenness. By the way, this was the great wisdom of our founding fathers. History tried to debate where should power lie? Should it be in a single individual called a monarch or should it lie among the people called a democracy? Which is it? An emboldened federal government or an emboldened people uh, who, who elect federal government or, or whatever it is? The founding fathers says no, the problem isn't monarchy or democracy. Both fail miserably. The problem is power. So what is a system that can provide necessary governance that at the same time is so limited and complicated to make it more difficult for people to to overtake government or the government to overtake the people? To protect liberty, the government can protect liberty and the people can protect their liberty from governments. And that was the view of, of, of the American Republic. Babel reminds us that empire remains a constant temptation for humanity. And we believe that to possess all control throughout history is to secure peace and tranquility. Thus, empire justifies wars, greed, and violence. And I turn on the news today trying to think of an example. They've been doing it for like a week. I can't think of an example of an empire invading a sovereign state for their own purposes and glory. Can you think of one? I, I just, I'm struggling with it. This has always been the, 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 the what we want, right? If we take over there, we get their influence. We can spread our culture and thus we will have peace and tranquility in all of us. The many of us will be one. This is behind the Roman Empire. This is behind Alexander the Great. This is behind everything that we've seen throughout history. One of the most anti-empire books in the world is in the Bible. It's called Revelation, where the beast who sits on seven hills of Rome is under the judgment of God. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, the angels proclaim. And we Christians have to be careful not to glorify a nation or an empire. Patriotism is fine, but blindness towards corporate sin is unacceptable for the church. When we justify the actions of someone on our side politically or culturally and morally because they are on our side culturally, morally, or whatever is unacceptable for Christians. The end game is not political power and influence, 
but the glory of God in the redemption of sinners and the discipleship of believers. We have to be careful in playing the empire game. Our citizenship is first in heaven, thus preserving the prophetic voice of the church is paramount to the political influence of American Christianity. Well, that gets me enough trouble as it is. The second thing we see here is the Tower of Babel directs us to God's reconciling work. At Babel, God made the one many. But by the end of the chapter, God makes the many one. In fact, I'll put it up the screen, but it may be helpful because it's probably on, your, on the same page, at least mine is, if not, it's the next page. Genesis 12, 2. It's the story of Abraham, right? What does it say? I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Notice here, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations and you will be a father of nations, of kingdoms from, from you will come this. So out of the one through Abraham will come the many. So this is the difference between the good tree and the bad tree. Had Adam and Eve just waited patiently on the providence of God, they would have been ready for that tree. But they hurried along to get what they wanted now. But God offered them something far better if they just waited on his timing. Hear what it is we say when man runs headlong after their own folly and wisdom, that you get destruction. But when God acts, he will make their name great. He does it through Abraham, who, coincidentally, is from Ur, which is next door neighbors to Babel. He must flee, not by going east, he must flee by going west. Out of Ur, through Haran, into the land of Canaan. The Babylites wanted a great name, so they took for themselves from the fruit of envy. Abraham, on the other other hand, is given a great name. In God's time and in God's way. Didn't Christ model this for us? Especially compared to Babel. At Babel... You have those who are lowly, who make themselves great, who, who make their name high. They lift themselves up to the sky, the heavens. In Christ, what is it that we have? One who is on high in the heavens, who makes himself lowly. In fact, what is it that Paul tells us about Christ who made himself nothing? Philippians 2 God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There's that name language again. So the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Look, his name became great. Well, one last thing. The Tower of Babel points us to Pentecost. I don't want to spend forever on this. But there is a story in the Bible that is an inversion of Pentecost, or the inversion of Babel, and that is Pentecost. Think about it. Here, one language is turned into many, and they were confused. Pentecost. And in that story, it was a man was trying to lift himself up to God. But at Pentecost, God comes down in the form of his spirits. And the many languages, there was no confusion when Peter stood up to preach. That's the point of the story, isn't it? How is it that I hear that Galilean speak my language? Oh, but he's not speaking your language. Yeah, he is. I understand everything he's saying. It's the inversion of Babel. 
And what Peter says is essentially, Christ's name is great. Come and join his kingdom and you'll be drawn to the heavens. It's a true and better tower, a true and better kingdom, a true and better city. Empire building has long been the ambition of mighty men to conquer and to unify the world, from Alexander the Great to Nebuchadnezzar to Adolf Hitler to Napoleon to Caesar. The vision is always to make one out of the many, yet in every example, from Babel to now Russia, which you get in its wake is just many broken people. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ comes bearing a kingdom. And his kingdom is to everyone, Jew and Gentile. And his message is simple. If you want to enter this kingdom, repent. For the kingdom is here. And it's open to anyone who might come. In this kingdom, salvation is not subject to work, to our work, but to his work. Diversity under the name of Christ is celebrated. What unites us is Jesus. And how does the Bible end? Not with mankind building a high tower to elevate itself, but God rescuing mankind. And what does it say? They're singing. Who is singing in Revelation 5? People of every tribe, people of every language, people of every ethnicity. And they're singing the same song. In chapter 7, the same thing. A great multitude, the many, have now become one from every nation, every tribe, every people group, every language, standing before the throne in white robes, singing to the glory of God. At the end of the day, this story points us to the hope we have in Christ. Wherever you go, there is a language we can all speak. And his name is Jesus Christ. When I went to Africa years ago, no one there spoke English except for those of us who were on this trip. Yet every day, we gathered in the, this tribe. There was a little area we could gather and we were safe. And in three or four languages, we all sang Amazing Grace. So in the one sense, I had no idea what they were saying in French or in the other languages there. But I knew exactly what they were saying. Let's pray.